Well, let's begin with praying to, praying to the Lord, asking him to bless, uh, bless this message. Father God in heaven, Lord, uh, Lord, you are holy, Lord. There is no one like you. Um, we thank you for your word. I pray that um, you would just bless, um, just bless this time. I pray that you would bless my ability to speak, to speak clearly, to speak edifying um, words of encouragement this morning. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. This morning, we are going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Um, the title I chose is The Real Battle. Um, I had a wonderful lunch with someone um, who goes to this church the other day, and we were reading through a book, just looking at the first few pages of a book uh, written by R.C. Sproul called Growing in Holiness. And we were both struck by something that um, Sproul said in the book where the where R.C. Sproul is talking about before he became a Christian, life was fairly uncomplicated. It only got complicated when he became a Christian. And um, we were both really encouraged by that. And it's very much related to what we're going to be reading this morning in Ephesians 6, uh, 10 through 20. It's about the real battle. And the message is really about how uh, the Christian life is a difficult one. Um, it is a, an intense battle, um, and we have an intense, formidable foe that we fight. Um, and we're also going to be learning this morning that um, our enemy is not one that can be seen. If you can see a person in this room, that means that person is not your enemy. Um, the enemy is unseen. And what we're going to be looking in this passage and seeing is that while we have a formidable foe, while there's an intense battle, um, we have someone who is greater, and that is Christ. And his benefits and his resources for us that come from him are greater than that formidable foe. I remember um, this story. I was in the United States Army for eight years, and at the very beginning of our training, I remember hearing a story. Um, the story, the training was about how to take cover when you're in a convoy deployed overseas and your convoy comes to a stop um, in a dangerous situation. You don't want your convoy to stop, um, especially in a dangerous situation, but there's times where it has to stop. So we were learning, we were given instructions on what to do when the convoy stops. And so one particular part of the training was on taking cover behind the vehicle. And as the drill sergeant was telling this, this story and all of it, he was giving the story to give us instructions in how to take cover behind a vehicle. He told a story about how when he was deployed overseas, um, a friend of his um, was taking cover behind a vehicle and his friend ignored the instructions. The simple instruction was don't look. Don't look, don't be curious. Wait, wait, wait for instructions from your, your superiors and your commanders and your sergeants and all of that. Don't take it upon yourself to look, it was the wait. And so he was telling us his story because his friend didn't follow that instruction and it cost him his life. He shouldn't have looked. He was given very simple instructions. And the reason why I'm sharing this story because the Christian life is very, is very similar to battle. And that's what we're going to read here, is that there's an intense battle, and here is what our commander in heaven, Christ Jesus, has given us. 
given us instructions for how to fight this battle. And that's what we're going to see here in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, is that the Apostle Paul, speaking on behalf of God, is going to give us instructions for how to fight this spiritual warfare. And it's going to be instructions that include two things. One, these instructions are going to tell us first how to understand the spiritual warfare. And after we learn how to understand the nature of the spiritual warfare, then we're going to be told about the resources and the weapons that are available to us in Christ to fight the spiritual warfare. Often in Ephesians, Paul starts off with the instruction first, right? The teaching, the first three chapters of Ephesians are teaching. The last three chapters of Ephesians are, okay, now you know what to believe in God. Now this is how you're supposed to live because you know who God is. So we find ourselves at the end of the book of Ephesians um, for this message. And Paul's doing both again, giving us instructions he wants us to know what the real battle is. And then he wants, us to, wants to tell us how to fight that real battle. So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 20, I will read it to get us started. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. What I've done in this passage is that I've just kind of separated it, organized it um, into five main instructions that Paul is giving us. Um, and the first instruction, um, the first instruction is that, um, that we need to draw our strength from Christ. Another way to put this is that Paul is telling us that the strength that we need is heavenly, not earthly. Um, I, I appreciate, um, watching fights on TV, like, uh, UFC, stuff like that, boxing or whatever. Um, I am constantly prone to equate physical manly strength with strength and power to accomplish things. What Paul is doing in this passage 
is that he is correcting our understanding for how Christians live their lives when it comes to spiritual warfare. The strength is not in us. The strength, the power, the ability to um, live the Christian life is not um, in people. It's not from people. Um, Now we have access to it and that's what he's drawing our attention to is that strength comes from Christ and specifically from something that Christ accomplished. If you look down at verse 10, it says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Um, We need to understand what Paul means by when he says in the strength of his might. And to do that, we need to turn to Ephesians a few pages back, 119. Ephesians 1.19 is part of a, of a very long prayer. Um, it's actually one sentence. Um, and so it starts with the word and in verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Now that language there, his great might, that's the same thing Paul's talking about in Ephesians 6.10. This next verse in verse 20 is going to explain what the, this great might is. In verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The great might and the great power that Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 is the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And here's how that directly relates to every believer is that Christ accomplished salvation on the cross. He accomplished it. He did it. He sat down one time. He accomplished salvation. And what Christ does is that when you believe in Christ, what he does is that he applies the power of that salvation to your life so that you were formerly dead and you are now alive in Christ. And what he means by dead, it means, um, for example, our thoughts are dead. We think only about sin before we came to Christ. They were, we were in, unable to love. We were dead in our affections, dead in our ability to think right thoughts, dead in our ability to make decisions to please the Lord. And what Christ has done is that because he accomplished salvation, if you believe in him, here's what he's done. Just as Christ rose from the dead, you also share in his resurrection. You also, so you too died with Christ on the cross. Your former self died on the cross with Christ because he applies the benefits of the cross to your life. And, and he also applies the resurrection to your life. He does that by renewing you, by transforming you, giving you a new mind to give you the ability to think right thoughts, to give you the ability to have right affections toward God, right affections toward others, right affections toward yourself. And it gives you the ability, gives you the ability to make right decisions for him, right? So in verse 10, what Paul is doing is that he is reminding us where true strength is, 
where true power is, and we go back to the cross. And here's what we're going to see. That's the first instruction, is to draw our strength from Christ, is to know that true power comes from Christ. And this is going to lead to the second instruction. The second instruction is that we are to prepare for intense battle. And here's something fascinating I saw as I was preparing this message is that Paul is telling us the battle is intense before he really begins to describe the battle. He wants us to know right away that this is an intense battle. And we see intensity in verse 11 in two ways. First, uh, one is that there is a formidable enemy. Is that this enemy should not be taken lightly. And two, what we're going to see is that we have been given great resources to fight this enemy. Um, So one, if we look at, um, in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil throughout scripture, devil means slanderer. And I just wanted to share with you guys all the different names that the Bible describes our enemy. The devil is called the serpent, the serpents of old, the dragon, Lucifer, adversary, the false accuser, the tempter, the wicked one, the accuser of the brethren, the ruler of this world, the God, meaning little g, false God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, The Bible describes Satan as transforming himself into an angel of light, referring to his ability to deceive. You know, I was younger, I used to watch, you know, Tom and Jerry and all that, and they'd have like a, you know, they'd have like a cat that's all devilish with a pitchfork, you know. Um, Yeah, I think the person who invented that idea is Satan, because he wants you to think that he can be easily spotted. Satan works in the shadows. He works in the background. He does not want you to know that he is at work. Um, he, Satan is also called a guardian cherub. He is described as a, lor- a roaring lion. He steals, kills, and destroys. And as I was preparing this message, I was thinking about something. What's more intimidating and dangerous than a roaring lion? A roaring lion you can't see. And that's what Satan is. And that is the enemy that we are fighting. And what this also does, as we'll see in this passage, this informs us who the true enemy is. The enemy cannot be seen. Um, If you look around this room, you do not have an enemy in this room that you can see. The enemy is unseen. And what we're going to unpack here too is that the battle is intense. This language of schemes of the devil, it's another word for methods, you know, or some translations, the wiles of the devil. Um, Satan um, works in a way, his demons work in a way where we don't really know what's going on. We don't know that they are at work. This is the nature of spiritual warfare. And you'll notice the first part of this verse, the first thing Paul says is to put on God's armor. Um, Paul mentions that once here. He's going to mention the language again of God's armor in a few verses. 
And then in, when we get to 14 to 20, he's going to describe God's armor. But what Paul is focusing on this passage is that we need to not be complacent. Is that spiritual battle is real. And here is what spiritual battle is about. What Satan and his, and his demons want to do, they want us to doubt the goodness of God. They want us to take away our joy in Christ. They want us to be so selfish, so absorbed on ourselves that we hurt other people or even possibly even hurt ourselves. They are about attacking the blessings and resources that we have in Christ. And so what Paul is doing is continuing to teach us the nature, the nature of this spiritual warfare that we are in. This brings us to instruction number three, where he gives a little bit more information, focuses a little bit more on really the severity of the spiritual warfare. He wants us to understand who the true enemy is. And I've already alluded to this a few minutes ago. There is, we are surrounded by the enemy, but we cannot see the enemy. Um, if brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter what we disagree on, they are never our enemy. And if there is someone who comes in our life who's not a believer, if there is someone who wants to put us in prison for believing in the gospel, they are still not our enemy. They are the object of our love. They are our mission. We want, to, we want them to know the peace and the love of Christ, just as God graciously has shown us the peace and the love of Christ. There is an enemy. The enemy is not able to be seen. The enemy is formidable. And the enemy is presented in these terms in verse 12. Verse 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And that seals it right there. If you have flesh, if you look at someone and they have flesh and blood, they're not your enemy. That's what God's word says. But there is an enemy. And this enemy is described in, in really very intimidating terms. Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So not only is the enemy formidable, not only are they described in this intimidating language, but when they bring the spiritual warfare, it is never a small thing. And we see that in the word wrestle. Look in verse 12. For we do not wrestle. This is a great word to choose because there is background with the idea of wrestling in this culture. Um, there, the Greek culture was very influential in the world during this time. And here is how the Greeks fought. Um, how the Greeks fought was what, when after a battle was done, they would go across the battlefield, right? And they would look for the guy who like maybe just got cut on the arm and just pretending dead, right? They didn't want any of those guys to survive. So what they did, they flipped every person, they pinned their shoulder blades on the ground and put their head back. And then they would thrust a spear through their stomach just to make sure that one guy isn't pretending dead, right? So here's what the Greeks did. They, um, they, when they trained for war, 
what they would do is they would do wrestling. So what we know today as Greco-style wrestling. I, res I wrestled in high school and our teacher actually told us the story where basically Greco-style wrestling, the reason why you pin someone's shoulder blades back because the Romans fought like that. And what that, do, that, that did is that symbolized death. So that whenever, in one sense, when you're doing the Greco-style wrestling, in some sense, you're training for war to fight to the death. So this word here that's used for wrestle, it actually captures that imagery from that time frame. That means that this is an intense battle and it's a battle to the death. And for Christians, the Bible teaches two things. One, the Bible teaches that we are secure in Christ. The Bible also teaches that we wage a battle. The Bible teaches that Christ won the war on the cross. It's, and that is 100% true. Christ won the war. Christ defeated sin. He defeated death. He defeated Satan on the cross. Bible teaches another true reality, that there are battles that still wage. There are battles that still wage and that the Christian life is one of a battle. It's an intense battle. And also, as Paul points out, that we need to fight this battle with the whole armor of God. So again, what Paul is doing is that he is instructing us on the warfare. And so this brings us to the fourth instruction. The fourth instruction is, not only do we have a formidable battle, um, excuse me, a formidable enemy, not only is this battle intense, not only do we have to fight using God's armor, which he's going to explain in a few minutes, but we must fight until the end. What is the end? Until Christ comes back or until he takes us home. Um, no one should become a Christian because they think it'll be more comfortable. Um, being a Christian is a life of battle. It is, it is one on one hand, it's an intense battle, but in this battle, we have this great hope. We have this great hope that we are safe in Christ's hands. And not only that, we have all of these wonderful um, resources to use, which Paul will get to in a minute. And looking at verse 13, we see that there is this call to endure. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Here's what we're going to see is that God through Paul is telling us to endure. And this is going to transition next. And what we're going to see is that we're going to see the resources that God has given us to be able to stand to be able to endure. And so at any time in your life, in our lives, when we feel like we're just helpless, when we just feel defeated, we can be encouraged because it might just be that maybe we're relying on our own strength. And what we have here, the recipe that the Lord gives us is that when we're in his resources, when we use his armor, we can and we will and we must stand and endure. This brings us to the fifth instruction. 
Paul has just finished explaining to us the nature of this spiritual warfare. Um, and again, I must reiterate is that we are commanded, we are instructed to actually understand the spiritual warfare in a certain way. So that if we are, have trials in our life and we are not understanding them according to what the Bible says, then we're not waging the war how God wants us to. And then lastly, instruction number five, use the right weapons. In spiritual warfare, the last thing we want to do is take a knife to a gunfight, you know, um, and really when, if we use our own strength or human craftiness, we're not even bringing a knife to a gunfight. I don't know. We're bringing like, I don't know, a candy cane. Think of anything ridiculous that won't work. You know, that is the comparison. Um, Use the right weapons. That's what we're going to see in verses 14 to 20. And here's what I've done. I've broken these into three different groups. And the reason why I've done that because it looks like Paul divides these into three different groups. And when we look at the first group, when we look at each group, we have to understand that each armor in the group goes together so that we're not using one and not the other. Here's what I mean by that. Looking at verse 14, we see that there's the belt of truth, there's the breastplate of righteousness, and then there is a readiness given by the gospel of peace. So Paul groups these together, truth, righteousness, and to apply the gospel to your life. So it's like this. When we go and we fight this spiritual warfare, we're not waging it properly if we only have truth. We have to also have righteousness. The truth in the wrong hands can be very dangerous and cannot be helpful. That's why at that when we have truth, truth from God's word, we also need to live a righteous life. We also need to be living righteously. We need to be thinking righteously for what is the right thing that the Bible tells me to do in this situation. And lastly, the third thing related in this group is described here as the gospel of peace. And I'll just explain that kind of just using, just using a little illustration or just using a story. How can we use the gospel of peace in spiritual warfare? Well, here, here's an example, and I, I don't think I'm the only person in this room who can relate to this. Um, one time, at one point in my life, someone made me angry, Right? Um, and so someone made me angry. I felt like they said something that was uncalled for. Um, and so in my heart was just all this angst of, oh, I can't believe this person did this to me. Um, as I was preparing for this message, you know, and I thought back to when that was happened, um, here's how I pl- applied the gospel of peace to that situation. Because again, that situation right there is spiritual warfare. When I am tempted to think, Um, to be angry, to be upset by another person, a believer or unbeliever, right? That is spiritual warfare. Um, And here is how the Lord used this passage to encourage me, is that here's what I did. This person, you know, when someone doesn't like you, someone says something mean to you or or whatever, um, the temptation is to get angry. The temptation is to think about myself, And so here's what the gospel of peace does. It has us remembering that we were once enemies of God. 
that I was once an enemy of God. And what that meant was that one day, here's what I had coming toward me. I had the full weight of God's wrath. That, that wrath was already set on me in my life as I, as I was a sinner, you know? Um, and that was my position to God. My position was that God was against me and specifically his holy and just wrath and his anger. It never feels good to have someone angry at you. You can, you can feel it in your chest and in your gut. Well, imagine being faced one day with the full reality of the wrath and the anger of a righteous God, right? And here's what the gospel of peace reminds us. It's that I am no longer an enemy of God. I am at peace with God. Is that Christ on the cross, he died to satisfy God's wrath, to satisfy God's anger so that God is no longer angry with me. The Bible teaches us to grieve our sin, and we do know that we can grieve the Holy Spirit, right? The Bible also teaches another truth that's true at the same time, is that if you are in Christ, if Christ has satisfied God's wrath and you believe in him, God is not angry at you. And so this was really helpful for me because now what I, what I need to do is that when another person makes me angry, whether it was just or unjust, here's what we do next is that one, if the person's a believer, then I need to, why would I want to be angry with someone whom God is not angry with? Why would I not want to be at peace with someone that God is at peace with? And if the person that's made me angry or whatever the situation is, is not a believer, then what that does is that I need to pray for that person that God would save him or her so that he or she would enjoy the peace that I have with God. That, that, that is just one application of how to use this weapon, the gospel of peace, of how to, how to arm yourself. We arm our minds and our affections and that our decisions are directed by the gospel. So that's the first group. We have truth, we have righteousness, and we have the gospel. There's a second group here. Um, the second group brings out the shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So what the shield of faith, what we have to do is remember is that, ask the question, whose armor is this? It's God's armor. So here is what shield of faith means. It means that God has given us faith. It means that faith is a gift of God. It says in Philippians, I think it's 129, it has been granted to you to believe. The language of granting to you is a language that God has given you something. God has given us um, the privilege of believing. Faith is a gift. And here's what we do in our life because we need faith to trust God every single day with every trouble we go through. So it works like this. God has given us faith in Christ. And so what that means is that what, we, what that faith is, is believing that Christ took care of our biggest problem. Whenever we go through a small problem, here's what we have to do. Remember that Christ took care 
of the biggest problem, which specifically is that we were enemies of God. And because God took care of the biggest problem, all these other little problems, if we can have faith that Christ satisfied the eternal wrath of God forever, then surely whatever issue we're going through in this life, Christ can solve it. That is what faith is. It starts, faith always starts out remembering and believing what Christ did for us. And then we take every issue in our life and we compare that to what Christ did. That is a faith that's being spoken of here. Also, uh, another um, equipment is the helmet of salvation. This is a reminder of our security in Christ. What Satan wants to do is tell us all the time and make us doubt the goodness of God. He wants us to rob us of our joy. He wants to remind us of our sin, right? So that we can be so self-absorbed in ourselves that we're not thinking about Christ. What the helmet of salvation is, what it is, it's a reminder that Christ saved us and we are eternally secure. The Ephesians 1 says that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. With the helmet of salvation, your head is protected. If you are in Christ this morning, uh, if you are in Christ, you are safe. There are many situations where we feel unsafe in life, but your position before God is in Christ and it is safe. And then the last one in this group is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And I, I love the language of the Bible being described like a sword. Um, what this refers to here is that um, what Paul is doing is showing the sufficiency of God's word for every issue in our life. I, I once act, asked a blacksmith, is it possible to get a sword as sharp as it possibly can be? Um, I then, and which he said yes. And I then asked, if I'm remembering this correctly, is that if you try to make it sharper after you've already got it as sharp as it can be, like, what would that do? And I believe he said it would, he would, it would make the sword dull. And so the reason why I bring that up is because in the book of Hebrews, the Bible is described as a sharp two-edged sword. The Bible does not need human help. We need the Bible. There is nothing that we can add to the Bible. There is nothing we can add to the Bible to help us with our spiritual warfare. The Bible is sufficient. And then when it, and why? Well, the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. In 2 Timothy 3.16, we are told that the Holy Spirit, he, through the human authors, that he is the author and he authored every single word. So again, that's just another evidence that this is literally God's armor. It's literally his. And this brings us to the third, um, the third group that go together, and it's all about prayer. Um, it's, it's all about prayer. It's about praying at all times um, in the spirit. And here's what it means by praying at all times in the spirit. Well, first we need to know who is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. He is the third person of the Godhead. He is eternally God. And we are told in scripture something called the fruits of the Spirit. 
The fruits of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control, right? So since that's who the Holy Spirit is, the fruits of the Holy Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. That's how we pray, with love, with joy, with peace, with patience, right? So every single person that we pray for, for our own lives, we pray with peace, love, joy, patience, And again, this is the last armor that Paul's talking about. It's certainly not the least. And I I love how, I'm so thankful for how the Bible tells us to pray at all times for everything. Because that's a reminder to me that I can never arrive in this Christian life until Christ takes me home to glory. Because um, I could always pray more. I could always pray more. Any moment that any thought is troubling you, that is a moment to pray. That is a moment to pray. Um, And then one thing we noticed, the last couple verses in verse 19, um, Paul then asked the congregation, asked his, his readers to pray for him personally, for him to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And um, I just want to close our time this morning Let's pray to the Lord. Let's have on our hearts, on our minds, that Christ has us here to spread the gospel. He has us here to spread the gospel in whatever place we work. Nowadays, to be a Christian testimony, all you have to do is show up the work. And I'm not even joking. I've talked with someone recently who his work loves him and he's a young man. And he just loves him because he comes to work. What, what a time do we live in to show the world who Christ is through our lives as we wage this battle, this battle for holiness, this battle to bring God glory. Let's pray and ask the Lord to do such a work, to continue such a work in our lives. Father God in heaven, Lord, we are so thankful, Lord, for all the benefits that we have in Christ. We're thankful, Lord, Lord, we're so thankful, Lord, for your people. I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ here, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to do the work in our lives, to grow our love for one another, to grow our patience for one another, um, just to grow our long-suffering for one another. And we ask all of this, Lord, so that Christ may be glorified, so your Holy Spirit may be seen in our lives, working, transforming us, so that he may be glorified, and so that you, Father God, may be glorified. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.